Welcome to the Emerging Minds podcast. You're with Sophie Guy, and today I'm joined by Chris Cusson. Chris is a psychologist and senior counsellor of the Child Trauma Service at the Australian Childhood Foundation. In today's episode, we discuss how a neurobiological perspective on trauma assists in working with children who've experienced abuse-related trauma. We draw on polyvagal theory and how it speaks to the importance of creating safety in relationships, as well as looking to the body for signals about the most supportive response. Thank you very much, Chris, for coming and joining me today for a conversation. No worries, my pleasure. I wanted to start off by asking you to tell me a little bit about your background and how you came to be working at the Australian Childhood Foundation. Sure. Um, I've been with the foundation for about 15 years now, um, which is a long time. Um, But I suppose uh, when I started, we were just little and now we're, you know, in the 200s now. I think I was number 13 when I came aboard. And we've expanded a lot and there's just been a lot of opportunities. So I've got to work, you know, from in parenting to um, supporting out-of-home care placements for children in foster care and residential units to counselling to doing some training, lots lots of different things, mm-hmm. which has just been really rewarding and rich. I've always worked with kids and families. They're just my favourite. Can you tell us a little bit more about why they're your favourite? I think uh, because of the way that they think that they're not many adults, that they have different ways of knowing that are uh, so just joyful and Mm. playful and they're so tolerant and they're so able to live in their imagination and I love that and I hope that bits of that rub rub off on me, I suppose, um, in being with them. I mean, I think that's one of my biggest learnings when I, I went into working in counselling with kids in trauma was that it was it was going to be so heavy and dark and hard and working with kids, um, they find ways of coping and ways of being that are through their imaginations and mm. through uh, that I think they've got a lot to show us adults um, mm. in many ways. So, yeah, that's the main thing. Mm. Yeah. Parts of us we've forgotten. I exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, we, we were all kids, um, mm. yeah, at one point, absolutely. Mm. What age range does the Australian Childhood Foundation work with? Uh, kids up to 18. And it's primarily working with kids and families where there's abuse going on? Is that sort of...? Yep, abuse-related trauma is, right. is, yeah, um, is, is our work. We also work with some kids um, that show problem sexual behaviours or sexually harmful behaviours mm-hmm. and Sometimes there's a trauma background um, that comes along there, but but other times not so much. So that's really our our brief. We don't just work with kids. Kids don't come by themselves. You know, uh-huh. they're they're part of a, a broader system. And yeah, I, I think it's Im- important that we think about them in that way. So yes. um, we do a lot of work with parents and carers and kind of the system, the care system around children um, mm-hmm. that have experienced trauma, because. It's in the between that is where the work kind of sits, I think. Mm. Yes, and that leads in quite nicely to what we are here to primarily focus on today, which is to talk about the neurobiology of trauma and what that means for relationships and sense of safety and polyvagal theory, which is developed by a man called Stephen Porges. And I wonder if you could perhaps just give us a bit of an overview. What I love about it is it, it's not just a theory for, 
for people that have experienced trauma. So it's not about, you know, those people over there that have trauma that we need to help in that way. I think the polyvagal theory um, is about all of us. It lives in all of us. And uh, the way we are in the world and the energy and the arousal states that flow through us are exactly the same for everybody. And that's what I uh, that's what really strikes me about this theory that we we can get it in a way we all get it because we've all felt it so Porges came up with this theory a long time ago now and uh, he, he wasn't even thinking about the trauma field so much when he came up with it it's a theory really for me uh, that's around protection and connection so mm-hmm. um It's a theory that is about the layers within ourselves that we have that are organised to get us through the day, basically. So for kids that have experienced trauma, uh, their worlds have often had uh, more threat in them, let's say, than the kid that's Mm -hmm. sitting next to them in the classroom. And that's meant that their brains and their bodies have had to shift and adapt to, to their worlds. Uh, so when you look at a child that's experienced trauma, you're looking at any kid that's just been in a different environment than the child that sits next door to them, mm-hmm. basically. How would you explain some of the concepts that come through polyvagal theory to a child that's sitting with you in a way that would you think would be helpful for them to understand what's going on for them? I talk a lot about energy in their bodies. Mm-hmm. So for some kids, when they become activated, so there might be an implicit memory that comes up from something that they've experienced, often that will be in a relationship um, with someone. And that might just be a shifting expression on that other person's face. It might be the tone of voice that um, they that, that the child picked up from the, the teacher, let's say, um, in the classroom. And that might mean for that child that's experienced some hard stuff in the background that suddenly their body goes into a a place of needing to protect itself. Mm -hmm. Um, And that can often be through, say, mobilisation, which is when they get lots of energy in their bodies and they feel like they need to move um, around. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of the kids that we see in our uh, counselling house out at Mitcham. Is that uh, uh, like when you say mobilisation, is yeah. that what we typically think of as the fight flight yeah, system? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yes. So this is the fight flight active freeze. This is when adrenaline is pumping into the body. We get a surge of energy, basically. All of us will have experienced this to some degree at different points. For example, Mm. those that um, struggle with public speaking, um, Mm -hmm. let's say, as they're standing on the side of the stage waiting for the last person to to finish, they might be feeling, you know, hot under the collar. They might have beads of sweat on their forehead. They might not being able to think of the words that they're going to say. Mm -hmm. They might feel dry in the mouth. All of these are... A tiny little tastes of what children that have experienced trauma and have this kind of mobilised fight or flight response can experience in the everyday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for those kids, what's often happened for them is, you know, they've they've jumped up at school and run out of the classroom because something's happened for them that's reminded them in some way of the bad, the the hard stuff that happened at home. Let's say. And what can happen for them is um, they get treated like they're not the naughty kid in the class that the whole school has to stop to go and find this kid who's running around the yard and bring them back in and they feel like they've been naughty there's lots of shame there's head goes down 
And if we understand it through the lens of Porges polyvagal theory, what we get is this child has tried to be um, has, has a very adaptive system. So there's there's beautiful therapists like Bonnie Badenoch, and she says things like there there are no maladaptive behaviours. We talk about maladaptive behaviours in children; mm. they're always adaptive. And they're especially adaptive when we we start to learn what has happened for children in the past. Um, these children don't put these protective responses in place for no reason. It might have been that jumping out of bed and through the window and running up the street when dad came home was the best possible protection that that child um, could put in place at that time. If we use these protective responses and, and put them into place, uh, not as not as cognitive decisions, these are not decisions that we choose from you know, our, our thinking cortex part of our brain. These are decisions that our bodies make for us um, in the face of the possibilities around us. So yeah, we'll work with kids that have, for example, those kinds of fight or flight responses and they'll come into our counselling rooms and they won't be able to sit down and they'll be kind of wandering around the room and finding stillness really hard. Um, okay. And so what we would do with them is we would honour what their bodies need to do and we uh, try and work with them to find ways that their body can deal with that energy that's sitting there within their bodies so that might be if you've got a kid, let's say, that hits out a lot, we might try doing some ball stuff with kids or some ping pong with them or something that involves the same muscle groups they use to protect themselves and that allows that energy to shift through them but at the same time is kind of d diverting a bit from hitting out at somebody else. Because I think when protective responses like that fight or flight, there's one that's even more evolutionary, kind of older than that, and that is one of collapse or submission. Mm -hmm. Either of those kinds of responses are not ones that children are looking to others to help them. At those points in time, uh, for them, they're on their own and they've got to do whatever they need to do to be safe. Our bodies are always organised to protect us. At the same time, what we do is we continue to be there, you know, to offer that kind of support for when they're ready to come back into connection with us. Mm -hmm. And we have, to, we have to wait for that. I remember I was doing a training at one point and a student welfare coordinator was, uh, this stuff, we were talking about the polyvagal theory and this stuff was all clicking into place with her and she said, oh yeah, there's this, been this, this, this child, she said, and you know, she said, I've worked a lot of years in this role and she said, and he was a runner, so what he used to do was he'd run out of the classroom and then he'd just run around the, the border of the school, so just inside the fence, he'd just run and run. And what, what they would do was they would call her in as the student welfare person because she had a good relationship with him. And she said, what I used to do was I used to walk around the edge of the, the school with him but probably 10 metres away from him. So he knew that I was there but so that I wasn't impeding on his space, she said. Okay. And I just would walk along as he ran the laps of the school um, until he would slow down a bit and he didn't need to run anymore. And she said eventually he'd go and he'd sit on one of the seats that was um, on the bench seats around the edge of the school. And she said, yeah, and I'd go up and I'd sit on the opposite end of the bench and I'd just wait. I'd just wait until he was more into his cortex, more into that thinking part of his brain, more able to kind of connect um, mm -hmm. in that kind of relational way. So... Mm. I thought that was a beautiful example of honouring a child's protective response but also offering connection at the same time. Could you talk a bit about how 
um, the social engagement system and how that's connected to our nervous system and connected to different parts of our brain. Sure. The social engagement system, if available, I always think about uh, anything above the neck, okay, when it comes to the social engagement system. Yeah. So the social engagement system is about our face and it's about our tone of voice. Mm -hmm. Um, That has uh, a giant impact as we bump up against each other um, and our nervous systems bump up against each other as they do in the everyday. Yeah, so Porges will talk about uh, those things particularly and thinking about those things when we are with children and and those that have experienced trauma, being really focused in not on the content of our words but on the the delivery. So the tone, the the way we shift and and we move our bodies. Mm -hmm. But he says you can tell if someone's socially engaged because – uh, they'll orientate towards you with their heads. They'll they'll look towards you. They'll they'll nod their head as I can see you are doing right now. So <laughs> yeah, they'll smile. They'll show us those signs of of warmth and connection in those kinds of ways. And if we're open to that and able to be in connection with with each other in that way, that's um, neural exercise in many ways. Mm-hmm. And in those states, our body is able to kind of. Um, rest and relax in a way that uh, for children that have experienced lots of trauma and have lots of protective responses come up for them, um, they their bodies don't get so much of a chance to do. Mm-hmm. So we always kind of have to track um, with kids and those that we work with that kind of level of safety between us, you know, when, when does it come in and when does it leave? Uh, and one of the best ways I, I find to do that is through tracking a child's face you know as soon as they look down away from me I start to think okay what might they be needing now Uh, what is also happening at that point too um, is we have a connection of the vagus that goes into our heart Um, this connection uh, they call the vagal break vagus break and the vagal break is a a connection that slows our heart down basically Uh, and it's on uh, as we're sitting here right now, socially engaged, you've got your, your the break to your heart on. It's useful in that way because a break is easily taken off. So okay. if we ever needed to um, step into a more protective response of a different sort, if we if we needed sudden energy to come within our bodies, like a a, a, a mobilized response, that fight or flight. Uh, we need the break to come straight off, and mm-hmm. and that's what it's what it's able to do. So, uh, some of our work with kids and parents and carers, uh, when we work um, counselling with with our kids, mm-hmm. is to uh, think about that vagal break and to think about uh, you know how they're going with that. Is that still on? Because okay. we do lots of work around the breath, uh, work around. Uh, relaxation and calming that can help that break to just hang in there when they might be on that edge of moving into a more uh, a protective response of a different kind. Okay. Yeah. And how do kids respond to the idea of something like a break on your heart? Does it make sense to them? Sometimes we make- might talk about it, sometimes not. Going back to um, what I started off with earlier, that idea of energy in the body. Mm-hmm. So what kind of energy does it feel like um, when, and we'll talk about when they feel relaxed at, at some point at home or, you know, wherever in their, in their world and their lives. Mm-hmm. And we might talk about, okay, well, well, you know, what's going on in your body at that time? What does it feel like? Mm-hmm. 
and then we'll talk more about uh, – it depends. Like, as I said, lots of the kids that we work with tend to, to um, go into that mobilised response, maybe because they're the kids that you see more, you know, because they're the kids that are in your face or uh, running away from you. Um, in a uh-huh. way, those immobilised kids, they're – Invisible, you know that that's what they're attempting right. to be um, uh-huh. in some ways, or they're uh, not consciously again, but that's what they're attempting to do. That's how I, I, I talk. I talk energy in the body because it's neutral. Because they've had so many people often in their past um, associate their mobilized response with being naughty or uh, dysregulated is another word that people use, which I don't like so much. I think it's about uh-huh. them being adaptive in a different way when they need to go into one of those responses. And it's for us to understand that and adapt to that in many ways. And to, as I said, to honour that response within a child. None of us go through the world socially engaged all the time. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a matter of shifting arousal states all the time and, um, Mm. And that's just being that's just being human, because mm. um, I think the other the other side of of Porges theory as well, which is not around those um, lower down kind of more protective responses of mobilization and immobilization, but uh, are, are wonderful states of things like play. That is again, Porges will say that's neural exercise for the brain, because as as kids play, what they're doing is they're turn taking and they're uh, looking towards the other to to check out the state that they're in and what they're doing in themselves is their uh, Porges talks about players being a combination of the social engagement system but also the mobilized system because okay. you know think about a child moving around as they play they're practicing with that that vagal break that connection into their heart of allowing allowing it to go off a little as they run, as they do a little run over to that corner of the garden or whatever and then coming back with a ball let's say to throw to to throw to their mum or their care or whoever yeah, yeah, plays really important. Um, are really important for that embodied brain, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I'm curious to know whether this understanding did that start to sh- shift the way that you worked with families and with children? Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I think it's well through these understandings of the way. What we bring to sessions and what kids and, and parents and carers bring into sessions, the states of our nervous systems. Like there's there's some kids with oh, – there's one kid that I'm thinking of because I know I have to be extra strong in my social engagement zone. I, I, I can't be, you know, going out towards a mobilised state at all because I know that when I walk to the weight room, the first thing that I am clocking is – How's the arousal state in this child today? What are we starting off with here today? Mm-hmm. And it starts from that point, not when that child comes into that room, but from that point. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as I go out there, I I have to hold in my um, social engagement zone as much as I can to try and help that child not slip into a protective response. Right. And if they do, I have to go with that not demand social engagement. Uh-huh. I mean, this comes down to even talking with the, the person that that child will first see as they come into the um, space, you know. Yeah. Who sits on reception in your therapy rooms? Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of greeting does that child receive? Uh, sometimes when they come in with hoodies over their heads, a giant big cheesy smile and a, you know, 
hey, how's it going, is, is not what that child might need at that point in time. Uh, it comes down to even thinking about the offerings that we have in our spaces for children. The built environment that children are in is always kind of the silent partner there. Mm-hmm. So our relationships and, and the people around them are most important, but um, there's other elements that come in as well. Uh, you know, every now and then I'll hear a mower going from a neighbour next door and I might hear it only as a, a small noise, but for a child that has experienced trauma that might be starting to feel some activation, those low predator kind of noises, low uh, register noises are associated with predator sounds and um, kids that are starting to move into kind of more protective zones of mobilisation or immobilisation, they will tune into those noises much more than the the register of talk that Mm. is only a tiny zone. Um, So Uh thinking about those offerings is is really important as well. Mm. Have we got things for children to do if they go into a mobilised state, you know? Um, we what have sorts of things are helpful things like for big fit balls, you know, those oh, yeah. big gym balls that yeah. kids can kind of bounce on. Okay. Um, there's some rooms that we have that are bigger than others. So there's some kids that I will see that I'll book them into. I'll make sure that I, we always have a, a, a larger kind of space. Mm-hmm. Um, one kid that I used to work with a lot, it was basketball for him. So he loved basketball, but also it was my cue to knowing that okay, he's needing to, he's got some energy that's coming up here. This is what he's needing to do now. It's, this is not, this is not talk time now. This is, this is for him to shoot little basketballs into the little basketball ring that sits on the back of the door kind of thing at at that point. So Mm. offerings in, in those kinds of ways are important. Little fiddle toys that sit in the middle of, of the room, say. So most of our rooms have little sensory boxes in them so kids can, have something to do with their hands. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes the sand tray, even if kids don't use symbols in it, um, I've had kids that just like to sit next to the sand tray and run their hands through it, mm-hmm. uh, and that can be helpful for them. Really, it's about learning the child, and there's no one answer ever, um, mm-hmm. and there's no silver bullet, and we do the best that we can um, to continue to kind of join with our kids and and honour their responses, whatever they are and, and what they need at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but it's it's not a it's not a perfect science. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. I think that this this theory gets translated really well into the you know the window of tolerance, the Dan Siegel, Pat Ogden kind of concept, and lots of people have have borrowed it and referred to it. It's not actually about a lot of people have wrongly thought about it as like it's when you have too much emotion in your body you know you go out of your window in that way but it's more about the intensity of the the feeling and the energy um that we can process and integrate basically so for all of us that will be different we'll all have different kind of um, bandwidths basically Mm -hmm. of our windows that we move in and out of if we think of the window as like the same as as Stephen Porges social engagement system. So when we are in the window, we can socially engage with others mm-hmm. and we, we feel relatively um, calm and relaxed and socially engaged with those around us. When we uh, kind of stray towards the edges of those windows um, and head off above or below them, we uh, lose our, our sense of being with others in some ways and we are protecting ourselves in different ways. So if we go above the window, we are 
uh, in a mobilized kinds of st- kind of state too much energy i can't integrate it i can't work with others to help me to integrate it i'm i'm on my own here i need to do whatever i need to do here before i can come back down into this window again mm-hmm. for those that are under that's more associated with the immobilized state so that collapse that submission that lack of energy within the body so let's say mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll use that as a translation and I find that works really well for kids Uh, and we'll even draw it. So we'll draw it up as this is, this is, I don't know, little Sarah's window, okay? This is Sarah's window of tolerance. Uh, actually, I was, I was doing some work with a little girl, we'll call her Sarah. Um, she was about seven uh, a while back and I went out to do a home visit because we always do that before kids come in to see us mm-hmm. and the carer and Sarah had a whole lot of cats like heaps of cats mm-hmm. and some of the cats were really quite slow and sat around and other cats there was one cat in particular called Tiger that never stopped moving so as I was there right. Tiger just zoomed around the room and we kind of laughed about Tiger and then there were other cats that were kind of in the middle of that and that was that was an easy, beautiful uh, translation of the polyvagal theory using the window of tolerance for Sarah because she associated being in her window with being the, the middle cat, yep. the cat that wasn't too fast and wasn't too slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, she associated being above her window with Tiger, Tiger who never stopped moving. And I really liked the way of thinking about that because it made complete sense to her um, and... Um, that's not saying that when you're above your window, that's wrong. That's the wrong uh-huh. bit you need to be within your window. It's just saying, oh, look, um, we're in the tiger zone now. I feel like we're in the tiger zone now. And we made kind of just a laminated piece of paper with a picture of tiger above, the other picture of the middle cat in the in the social engaged window um, and another cat in the immobilised zone. Her area to work with was that mobilised to social engagement. We weren't we weren't needing to work in with immobilisation at all. Uh-huh. So we were sitting with those pieces. And what the carer would do at home was she put it up on the fridge and every now and then when she felt that little Sarah was headed off into a tiger zone, she'd go and she'd put uh, a, a fridge magnet that they agreed upon into that tiger zone and that would give this little girl a sense of where she was at because for our kids that have um, that are shift have a shifting arousal states like this, it's not they don't necessarily have awareness that this is going on for them. So mm-hmm. it's really helpful to get feedback from those around us but in a way that they can easily take on Um, we worked as part of a care team with Sarah's teacher at school and Sarah's teacher at school took on this window of tolerance idea as well and had it in the classroom and what sorts of things in that example would help her get back into that window of tolerance again that building relationship with her and being socially engaged with her for longer periods we did things like little visualizations and calming exercises to help with that kind of that heart rate that vagal break again mm-hmm. um, but then sometimes she would need to move so she'd need to get up and move around the room and she would do that and then she'd come back again uh, basically we just grew and grew in terms of the time that we could spend in that socially engaged zone uh-huh. but what was really good about it I think was it gave a shared language for home for school and for the the counseling room that meant that Sarah's world made more sense for her all all through so everyone was giving her the same messages it's letting the child lead in lots of ways and following their their cues and, and where they're at so once we're 
we found our way more solidly into that middle zone, then it was about helping her to extend her window out, that bandwidth width to kind of open it up um, as much as we could. Mm-hmm. And that looked like her being able to cope with more, you know, changes in routine and stuff. Okay. Um, in the beginning, it was really hard for her when anything was different. You know, if a teacher showed up, a relief teacher, that was going to be a, a, a hard day um, for this little okay. girl. Down the line, the school and, you know, we'd worked out ways to prepare her for that kind of stuff. But also her bandwidth was kind of wider and she was able to kind of um, integrate more of those different kind of experiences that came up for her. So, okay, yeah, this is never a switch. This is a process uh-huh. and this is a two steps forward, one steps step back kind of proposal uh-huh. and it's a it's best thought of I think as a team effort that team around the child is so important. For practitioners listening to this who aren't particularly familiar with polyvagal theory what do you think are sort of the one or two key takeaways about it that could perhaps inform their practice or just to to learn a bit more about it? One I think that we are all organised to protect ourselves at every point so that, you know, even if a child is um, swinging from the rafters, that is not necessarily uh, and probably not at all a, a, a cognitive choice that they've made. It's it's a way that they're being in the world at that point in time to keep safe probably. So that, that shift is big away from this idea of maladaptive behaviours. You know, what kids do and what they show us is adaptive and their behaviours make even more sense when you come to understand the hard things that they've been through in their lives. I think I think that that's, that, that's a really big one, that we need to honour what kids' uh, bodies and their, their kind of systems show us that they need on the other side of it again that other side that protection being one side connection being the other side Mm. uh don't forget just to play don't forget just to find sit and find joy with children when you can sit and draw with them sit and uh, follow their lead in that kind of way if you can do that with them that is not frivolous that is not something that we do as a warm-up, you know, before we start doing the work, you know, okay. that is uh, neural exercise, um, as Porges will say. That is helping them with their social engagement but also with their, their mobilised system. That is helping those systems work together uh, in the best possible way. Great. I could easily keep talking and ask you things but I'm going to leave it there. Okay. <laughs> So thank you very much, Chris, for coming in no and problem. talking Thanks to me. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, that. really had fun. Thanks. Great. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to further information and resources on today's topic. Visit our website at www.emergingminds.com.au to access a range of resources to assist your practice. Brought to you by the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health, led by Emerging Minds, and delivered in partnership with the Australian Institute of Family Studies, the Australian National University, the Parenting Research Centre, and the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners. The National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health under the National Support for Child and Youth Mental Health Programme.